So we're in the book of Acts, taking a look at a few verses here, talking about marks of a believer. I'm going to invite you to join me at the beginning of Acts chapter 10. We're going to read the entire chapter together. This is what Luke writes. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Hmm, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you were looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met them and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, 
Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. How are we all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us? Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the providence of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead and on the third day and caused him to be, to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he was the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Some walls are being reinforced. Many bridges are still under construction. On October 7, the Hamas military group in Gaza broke through the walls separating them from Israel, and they killed over 1,200 Israeli citizens and some others and kidnapped more than 200 in response, Israel broke through the same fences in order to occupy the Gaza Strip. As a result, tens of thousands of people have died. In response, other militant groups in the Middle East have been shooting missiles at United States bases and ships passing through the Straits of Hormuz. Incidents of anti-Semitism have increased dramatically in the United States since then, including multiple protest marches on campuses across the country. On our southern border, migrants are ignoring the bridges and circumventing the barbed wire fences and crossing the Rio Grande in order to gain entrance. 
United States Custom and Border Protection agents have encountered over 3.2 million illegally entering the country in 2023 alone, including large numbers of unaccompanied minors and people on the terror watch list. There is considerable debate about appropriate walls and bridges going on between Congress and the White House. Our governments, both national and state, are experiencing gridlock, the result of significant political polarization in our society. Democrats detest Republicans. Republicans detest Democrats. It's an election year, and that always seems to bring out the best in us. In our world, people are adept at building walls and breaking bridges. People find it very difficult to get along with people who are not just like them. The problem is we are no longer able to talk about a growing number of topics with one another. We are a nation. We are a world on edge, impacted by fear and anger and suspicion, distrust, prejudice, and racism. Is it any wonder why people are afraid, suspicious of people who are not just like them? I grew up in a white, middle-class, traditional family in a medium-sized West Michigan city, Grand Rapids. My father was a Christian school teacher I went to Christian day school. We attended church twice every Sunday. It took me years to realize that my world was just a very small part of the whole world. After graduating high school, I spent the summer working at Northside Chapel, an inner city church in Patterson, New Jersey. They ran a drug rehabilitation center next door for heroin addicts. It's where we spent our time. The members there looked quite different from me, economically, politically, socially, and racially. And I was, I was forced for the very first time to confront the they're not like me issue. I was in college and seminary. I went to Calvin, along with a majority of the students who looked exactly like me. Then I went to Fuller Seminary for my doctoral work, and for the very first time in my life, I was in the minority in the classroom. And I was again confronted with a they-don't-look-like-me issue. Today it happens regularly. Our world, our nation, even the church longs for direction and answers to that constant, very nagging, plaguing issue. What do we do with people that don't look like us, that don't think like us, that don't see eye to eye with us? And the truth is, the church is appropriately held to a very much higher level than what the rest of the world is. You see, Jesus never said, love your neighbor 
if they look like you and they think like you and they act like you. No, Jesus said, love your neighbor. Love them as you love yourself. And then Jesus told a parable where he said, everyone you meet is your neighbor. Let me translate. That means treat those you meet, including those who are very different from you, like you would like them to treat you and like you would treat yourself. Truth is, this is a very hard saying. It challenges our paradigms and our prejudices. It is one thing to be able to embrace that commandment from God theoretically. It is a whole different story to be able to embrace it and act it out in our daily living. In Acts 10, Peter is forced by God's spirit to face his personal prejudices In this chapter, the Spirit is challenging us also to face our prejudices that keep us separated and in a distance from other believers and from non-believers who are different than we are. The reality is, every one of us possesses tendencies to build walls and to break bridges. The things that separate us and divide us We all have that tendency. The scripture calls that tendency sin. And it says, we're all sinners. We all prefer to build walls and to break bridges. Sometimes it might be the color of their skin or their nationality or their ethnicity. Sometimes it might be their political leanings or their sexuality or even their marital status. Sometimes we might resent their wealth or envy their influence or reject their lifestyle. Sometimes it might be their faith that builds that wall. Perhaps they're Catholic or Muslim or Mormon or Buddhist or Jewish or maybe nothing at all. But Jesus was pretty clear. Jesus said it, and we've repeated it over and over. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, all kinds of people. So here in this chapter, we meet Peter. Peter is one of those leading disciples, if you will. But he's prejudiced, and he's a self-righteous person. Peter is Jewish, and he hated And in this context, hated is not too strong of a word. He hated Gentiles. So he literally hates everybody that is not like him who is not Jewish. Growing up, you see, he was taught, you're better than everybody else. If you're not Jewish, you're not much. And he believed it. If a Jew even as much as touched a non-Jew, even accidentally, they were considered to be unclean. They had to go through a purification process. No self-respecting Jew would ever enter a Gentile's home, nor would they ever invite a Gentile into their house. They believed it defiled them. The Mishnah, that is the commentary, which told Jews how they were supposed to live in the world, 
forbid Jews from assisting in the birth of a Gentile because that would simply be bringing another hated Gentile into the world. Jews believed that they were God's only chosen people and therefore they were better than everyone else and shouldn't associate with anyone else. When Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, the disciples and in fact the early church heard because they were all Jewish, Go and make disciples of all the Jews in every nation. That seemed okay to them. That seemed to be right. That was comfortable. They felt relatively safe doing that. It was an adventure. And so for the first 10 years of the church, they focused on Jews, on people like them. And they basically ignored anybody and everybody else. The truth is, in those first few years, they were still building more walls than they were bridges. And for a time, God tolerated it. Then comes Cornelius. Luke tells us he is a Gentile. Luke tells us he's not only a Gentile, he is a Roman Gentile. And not only is he a Roman Gentile, he is a military man. He is a centurion. He commands troops. For a Jew, it doesn't get any worse. And although he is not a Christ follower at this point, Cornelius, Luke says, prays to God. He has a compassion, compassionate and a very generous heart. And he would generally be considered by people who met him to be good people. The reality is Cornelius and his family are still lost. They don't know Jesus. And that's very sad. But even sadder is that no one in the early church seems to even care that they're lost. Then we get to that third verse in this 10th chapter where Cornelius is visited by an angel and the scripture says, your prayer has been answered. Send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And Cornelius obeys. A Gentile, a Roman Gentile, a Roman Gentile with military authority, listens to God and obeys I also want you to observe here, hidden in this text, is that God has already been working to soften Peter's heart for this occasion. Peter, Luke says, is staying at the house of a tanner. A tanner works with dead animals. So a tanner is, by Jewish definition, perpetually unclean. He would have been suspect, suspect in any Jewish community, and Peter is literally staying by his house. But please understand, in the entire book of Acts, God is the primary character. He is the primary care actor throughout this book. And he's working among his people to promote God's preferred future for his church. And on this occasion, the DNA of the church needs to be reset. Sometimes that's necessary even today. God sends Peter this vision 
of a large sheet that is being filled with all kinds of creatures. Verse 9 and 10. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven literally open and something like a large sheet being let down by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals. Those were prohibited as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice tells him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. The seed is filled with non-kosher food. Food's forbidden to Jews in Leviticus 11 and in Deuteronomy chapter 14. So righteous Jews didn't eat, never ate such things because, because they were forbidden. And now God says, Peter, put some bacon on your LT. Have some ham with your eggs. Try the pork barbecue ribs just once. Have some shrimp scampi. Peter says, "Uh -uh, that's not happening, Lord. I'm not about to eat something that is unclean. So here's a life principle. It's never a good idea to say no to God. It's never a good idea to say no to God. But in this case, it shows just how deeply entrenched Peter's prejudices and traditions were. I wonder sometimes how often you and I might say no to God, say no to his word or his commands for the sake of maintaining our biases and perspectives. But Peter replies, I mean, sorry, God replies, Peter, don't ever call anything impure that I have called clean. Peter is still thinking about food that he's going to eat. God has moved on. He's thinking about people that Peter needs to build bridges to, to break down walls for, to simply love. Imagine if God were to let down a sheet in one of your dreams, who or what might be in that sheet? Who or what might God be inviting you to build a bridge to, to walk across the room to engage in or to embrace in Christian love? So God shows this picture to Peter once. Then the scripture says, God showed it to Peter again. Twice. And then the Bible says he showed it to Peter three times. Again, it's entrenched deeply. You see, God knows Peter. God knows us. Remember the last time that God, that Jesus asked Peter something three times in quick succession? Simon. Do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, do you really, do you really love me? God knows Peter. God knows us. And then Luke writes here, and while Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, so 
God has told him once, God has told him twice, God has told him three times, and Peter's not quite sure yet what this means. He hasn't quite got God's point, even though God has told him repeatedly. But then all of a sudden, there are three men knocking at the door. God's timing is always impeccable. And while Peter is still thinking about the vision that he has just seen, the Spirit says to him, Simon... There are three people that are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs and do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them to you. Now, Peter might be thinking, oh, rats, an interruption. I hate it when the doorbell rings and I'm praying. And they're probably Gentiles. But God is an expert at making us face his preferred future head on. And these people are quite different than Peter. But now he has no choice but to face them because they're standing outside his door and because God said, you need to go and greet them. God's preferred future for people is a community of wall breakers and bridge builders, not a community of wall builders and bridge breakers. Let me say that one more time. God's preferred future for his faith community is wall breakers and bridge builders, not wall builders and bridge breakers. Peter is suddenly confronted by the real world. He has no place to go. There are three Gentiles at his door. And so he invites them to come in and to be his guests. God has left him no choice. But please understand, this is a huge step for Peter. I mean, imagine what his Jewish neighbors are thinking. (laughs) Because I'm sure Peter is. Bridge building is always costly. Especially when it involves ethnic, economic, religious, and racial bridges. Throughout his ministry, Jesus sought to include people from the other side of the wall. It's a major factor in religious leaders calling for Jesus' crucifixion. The bridge God is asking Peter to build will also be a costly one. See, it will cost Peter his pride, his self-righteousness, his ego, his prejudices, his reputation, and eventually his life. He will be criticized when he returns after having spent this time with the Gentiles, when he returns back to the faith community. He will be compelled to defend himself. But the very next day, Peter leaves with a couple of fellow church members and Cornelius's men to go to Caesarea. It's a two-day trip. So Peter is now keeping company with Gentiles. People like us. Remember? You and I. We're Gentiles. But notice this very first step. Part of God's plan. Peter and some Gentiles are spending time together. It's a two-day journey. And on the walk, Peter discovers that these are pretty regular people. These people that I thought were so much different than me aren't all that much different. 
and God is at work. So they arrive in Caesarea, and Peter is again faced with a very hard choice. Is he going to actually step into the house? Is he going to go into the house of a Gentile, of a Roman, of a military leader, a non-believer? Here's another line that once you cross it, you can't go back. Peter will pay a significant price for this bridge building, and he walks through the door, perhaps the first time in his life when Peter is in the minority. Peter's on God's fast track. He's beginning to learn. Cornelius sees him and falls to his feet, but Peter says, no, 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 stand up, for I too am merely a man. Peter is learning. The differences aren't that big, certainly not big enough to build a wall. He's learning Jesus is Lord of all. And what Jesus says, he expects his disciples to do. Tony Evans, an African-American pastor in Dallas, says, no matter what ship we came over on, we're all in the same boat now. And then Peter takes a second step. He says, tell me your story, Cornelius. I need to listen. And we all have a story. Verse 28 you are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. For when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. So I'm here. Tell me why you called. And Cornelius tells his story. Peter listens. Peter learns. I now recognize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation that fear him and do what is right. Here's the mark of a believer. Peter is teachable. He is teachable. You see, disciples are Talmudim. They are students of their rabbi. And the mark of a believer, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, is lifelong learning. The process is sometimes referred to as sanctification. But Jesus is in the process of teaching us to be more and more like him. It's a lifelong refining process. But all disciples of Jesus must have a teachable spirit and must long to embrace God's preferred future. And then third, after listening, Peter shares his story. He shares the gospel, the good news. Peter tells them how Jesus came and changed his life. We need to learn to share that gospel, our story, to love on others with enough love to bring them into the kingdom. We need to love people in Jerusalem and in Judea. Those were people like us. And in Samaria, where they're sort of like us, and, and in the world, where it's full-blown Gentiles, people that are not at all like us. It's hard to understand unless we've been in his shoes. What a dramatic change this was for the Apostle Peter. It was a huge paradigm shift. But God is calling his church to be gracious and enfolding community. For those who are like us. And even for those who are not. Peter is now inviting 
people to be his brothers and sisters that a few days before he wouldn't even have considered talking to or sharing a room with. It's a step toward God's preferred future. How do I know? Listen to verse 44. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. In other words, they all received God's blessing. Peter recognizes God's preferred future. He obeys. He steps out on a limb to build a bridge. He baptizes Cornelius and his family in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These once hated Gentiles are now his brothers and sisters in Jesus. And then they ask Peter to stay with them for a few days, and he does. Final step, life together. Ham sandwiches, lobster bisque, ribs, sweet potato pie, sushi, kimchi. Spending our time with those who are not like us, who have different tastes and interests, breaks down walls and builds bridges. And Paul would later write, he himself is the reconciler who makes the many groups one and destroys the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose is to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace and to reconcile us together in God through the cross. Check it out. It's in Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 14. Don't miss that this text this morning is more about Peter and the church and having to address the prejudices and the wall building and the bridge breaking that we have been doing than it is about Cornelius and his family coming to know Jesus. Please don't misunderstand. One person coming to Jesus is an absolutely amazing event for which heaven celebrates. But building a bridge to an entire family group, a people group, a new nation, so that they might come to Jesus Christ is absolutely incredible. Jesus knows in order to build his church, we have to be bridge builders and wall breakers. He also knows it will come at a cost. It came as an incredible cost for Jesus. It will come as an incredible cost for those who would follow him as well. Three things. One, we need to face our prejudices, whatever they might be. We all have them. We need to identify them, admit them, address them, and then set them off to the side. It is not enough just to talk about them or just decide that someday we're going to do something about them. We actually need to do something about them to take the risk, to step out in faith, to believe that it is God's preferred future for his church. Our neighbor's eternity hangs in the balance. Do we really care? Do we know our neighbors? Do we know their name? Are we praying for them? Have we ever had a conversation with them? Have we ever invited them over to our house? Have we ever been to their house? Do we care enough to do something? If we're not moved to do anything, not even a little something, you have to really wonder how much we love them. Second, we need to pay the price that's necessary for bridge building. Don't forget the price that Jesus paid to build a bridge to us. 
You and I, remember, we're Gentiles. God took on human flesh, left his place in heaven to build a bridge. If all are not welcome, then you and I would not be part of his family today. If barriers and walls were not broken, if bridges were not being built, then we would not be here and the church would have no good news to share. No gospel message of grace, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of unity, of hope, or of love. The Christmas angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. And that includes the most conservative Republicans and the most liberal Democrats, citizens and aliens, people who are like Peter and people who are like Cornelius, people who are like you and people who are like me. The people you and I struggle to love. It's a gospel for everyone. This was a huge, dramatic paradigm shift for the early church. It's addressed again in the very next chapter. But it is clearly God's preferred future for his church. Sadly, Sunday morning still remains the most segregated time in America. And then third, we need to obey God more than maintain our comfort and follow our tradition. What does it say when our desire to be comfortable prevents us from sharing the gospel with those who are not mirror images of us, but are still fully image bearers of God? Are we willing to embrace God's preferred future by embracing people who are not just like us? Are we willing to follow his agenda? Are we willing to pay the price that obedience requires and embrace Christ's vision of a church for all people? all nations, from every race, every economic level, and every language. Paul says, in Christ, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, reconciling us to God through the cross. Christ brought us together through his death. The hostilities, the walls have to go. Bridges need to be built. This is God's vision for his church. This is his preferred future for us. In the early 1960s, a little white first grader boarded the bus for her first day at a newly integrated school. This is the Ruby Bridges story. Love that last name. Her mom nervously met her when the bus arrived to bring her home after school. How did it go, honey? She asked. Oh, mom, do you know what? She said. A little black girl sat right next to me. Knowing this was a new experience for her daughter, her mom asked, what happened? The little girl said, Oh, we were so scared, both of us. We held hands all day. That's God's preferred future for his church, to be actively breaking walls and building bridges as we hold one another's hands because we know and understand that everyone matters to God.
Let's pray together. Father, what a gift to know that we matter to you, that you were willing to send your son, Jesus Christ, to bring us, to bring us home, to bring us into your family. And we're thankful that, for that, that you built that bridge, that you broke that wall. Now, Lord, may we too break walls and build bridges to build your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.